Welcome, Owen Furseth, to the Plan Charlotte Talk of the Town podcast series. Thank you, Mary. Um, today we're going to be talking with Owen Furseth, who is the Associate Provost for Metropolitan Studies and Extended Academic Programs at UNC Charlotte. He's also a professor of geography in the Department of Geography and Earth Sciences. And if your title were any longer, we'd have no time for the podcast. <laughs> Longest title on campus. Yes. But um, Owen is retiring at the end of this month. And before he he slips away, we want to get him um, to talk about his history and his research, which has covered a variety of subjects and, and has been, I think, very interesting and informative in terms of planning and in terms of how our community has grown and changed. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about his, um, his work in open space preservation and then later his work in demography and his work studying the immigration into Charlotte. So let's get started with um, the open space preservation in Charlotte and Mecklenburg County. There was a lot of talk about this in the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. What came of that? Um, Well, I think in terms of what was the focus early on, which was farmland preservation, not much came of it at all. But in terms of, I think, raising the issue of open space and the value of open space to uh, prosperous urban places or regions, I think that issue... Uh, has kind of resonated in terms of parks and recreation uh, and in terms of discussion now about uh, urban design and how we plan as cities and and look at it in terms of being an urban as well as simply a rural issue. Uh, as kind of an aside, I would note that, that when I came to UNC Charlotte, I had um, worked as a planner in Florida in the Jacksonville area, and then I went to Oregon, which at the time had probably one of the most progressive policies, urban planning policies in the U.S. in terms of of planned urban growth and open space preservation. And so I arrived a, um, you know, a young academic and was looking for collaborators locally. And uh, early on, I went down to the planning commission and um, uh, knew some folks down there because I had gone to East Carolina and there were some planners from East Carolina uh, who were also uh, in the organization. And, And they said, well, what do you do? And I said, I'm really interested in farmland preservation. I'm really interested in open space planning. And I said, who are your environmental planners? And they go, "Um, we don't have environmental planners. And I went, what? I said, how can you not? Uh, Coming from uh, an environment in Oregon where across the state at the state level and the local level, environmental planning was key to what was going on. And so it was kind of an awakening at the time that open space and green sorts of issues really were not so important. Um, So that kind of is a starting point. Uh, What happened, I think, in the 70s and 80s was uh, an awareness of this issue, and and that's where I kind of got involved. Well, I remember when I was a journalist at the Charlotte Observer some years back, um, you were one of the people that I would call and say, okay, now tell me about how open space preservation works in other places. And what I learned was there were a lot of tools that were available that were not being used in Mecklenburg County. What are some of those tools? Sure. There was probably the most um, important tool in terms of local policy uh, was the notion of purchasing development rights. And that is a fairly complex idea, but essentially what it uh, boils down to is if you think of, of property ownership as a, a bundle of rights, the sticks, if you will, you can separate those sticks out. And so you can, in urban areas, sell the air rights, for example, the, the right to, to build above a parcel of land. 
uh, fundamental to this issue of rights is the notion of development rights. And so what you can do through conservation easements or through the outright purchase of development rights, separate rights from the property and either transfer those to another property or hold those in perpetuity or even hold them on a temporary basis. And where I was coming from in Oregon and the work that was going on out there in other parts of the country, this whole notion of, of transferring or purchasing developments rights was fairly common. And so when we finally began to think about farmland preservation in the, in the 80s, uh, and we looked at the tools, that was the tool that really came to the foreground. Well, it came to the foreground, perhaps, in your mind, but it, I don't think it ever really came to the foreground in Mecklenburg County. It's been interesting, the development rights, separating rights from the piece of property is a well-established practice in mineral rights. <clears throat> and in fact, with fracking, I think there have been laws passed that you right. have to sell your mineral rights even if you don't want to. But development rights was something different. Yeah, it was very progressive. It was it was alien to North Carolina. It had not been done. Uh, we were able, though, uh, under the leadership of, of the former county commission chair, Fountain Odom, uh, to put together a bond issue to purchase farmland and open space development rights in the 80s. And uh, it's, it's kind of a, a funny history. It was, it was the only bond that moved forward without the creation of a, a community-wide bond committee. So Fountain brought together probably about 20 people who were interested in this issue. We would meet around the table. We'd collect a little bit of money. We'd talk about what we needed to do. We went out. We posted signs around the city or around the county with actually the shape of a red barn saying, save farmland, vote for the farmland bonds. And uh, despite the fact that all of the media editorialized against the bonds, um, they passed. And so there was on the table uh, authorization for Mecklenburg County to sell bonds to actually purchase development rights. That was about $10 million, which would have gone a long way back then. But um, to your point, what happened was there was fairly strong opposition to that uh, from folks who felt this would impede development. And so those bonds actually expired. They were never sold. It's kind of sad to think because at, I remember at the time the idea of preserving farmland, the idea of local farms was kind of foreign. It's like what would be the point of having local farms when you can buy your produce from California? And, of course, today Indeed. The, the idea of having a lot more farms right here in Mecklenburg County, people, I think, would relish that opportunity. Indeed. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of your later work. You you were in pretty much, not quite on the ground floor, but close on the ground floor on a long-running um, initiative, which began as the city within a city, and it's now the Quality of Life Explorer, but it, it essentially uses demographics to help you understand the place you're living in. Um, how did that get started, and how did you get involved in it? Yeah, um that, as you said, arose out of the City of Charlotte's City Within a City program, and that was a program that targeted uh, inner-city neighborhoods. I think the original parameters were if you took Trade and Trine and you drew a circumference uh, three miles out from Trade and Trine and you looked at all the neighborhoods within, those, uh, within that boundary, that became the city within the city. And I think there was a legitimate, very wise concern that a city could not prosper uh, and be sustainable unless inner-city neighborhoods 
were growing and, and prospering the same way suburban neighborhoods were growing. So the original purpose from the Planning Commission, and I believe Deborah Campbell was involved at us back at the starting point, was to do an analysis that looked at neighborhood conditions. So what were the social conditions? What were the economic conditions? What were the infrastructure conditions in those neighborhoods? And what, they, uh, what the Planning Commission did was to come to the university, uh, to my colleague Dennis Lord uh, in the Department of Geography and Earth Sciences, and ask him uh, if he could come up with a methodology that would allow them to create a, a project that would assess across multiple dimensions what was happening in those neighborhoods. And Dennis did this, and this project, I believe, went back to 1996 uh, as a starting point. So Dennis did that. The, the city found that very useful. The elected officials found it very useful. And so they came back a couple of years later and said, can we take this model and use it then with local data rather than relying on census data, which Dennis had been using in the first iteration? And can we essentially... Um, create a statistical model that combines variables so that we get a single aggregate measure. Uh, and that aggregate measure was kind of a red, yellow, green sort of, of uh, marker, which was uh, neighborhoods that were stable, neighborhoods that were threatened, and neighborhoods that were fragile based on how they ranked over the other uh, CWAC neighborhoods. So we, we did that for the city. Uh, that was viewed as positive and very useful. And so three or four years later, it actually uh, it was expanded citywide. So not simply the inner city neighborhoods, but all the neighborhoods in the city, plus those parts of the uh, community that would eventually be annexed by the city. What were um, some of the, the ways that information was used? I mean, you're looking at the city and you kind of already know, well, these neighborhoods are not wealthy and these neighborhoods are. H how did the the closer and more statistically, um, whatever, the more, a more statistical look, how did that help in analyzing the city? Yeah, it was, you know, it was clear there were low wealth neighborhoods and there were the high income neighborhoods. The question became, uh, what are the elements that make this neighborhood or put this neighborhood in this particularly disadvantaged status? So we could go in and we could drill down and say, oh my gosh, there's a high violent crime rate, or, oh my gosh, there's no sidewalks in the neighborhood. And then, because uh, eventually the study was done every two years, we ended up with longitudinal data so that we could look at changes over time. And so what the city was able to do with their infrastructure investment programs, as well as the deployment of, of human resources, was to identify what were the key issues in, say, a, a East Charlotte neighborhood versus a West Charlotte neighborhood, and then make strategic investments in those neighborhoods that would ideally pay off. And then, again, because the study was being replicated and the same variables were being used, you could go back two years or four years or six years later and see how well things were working. And if the you know there, were, there was a turnaround and the neighborhood was doing better in that area, then you didn't need to continue to put resources in that investment. Was there any way to, to show correlation, um, to show causation rather that... Um, okay, they built sidewalks and now the neighborhood is improving, or was it just a matter of correlation? It was correlation. I mean, you could infer a certain degrees of causality, and, and that was kind of an underlying principle. But in terms of the, the study itself, 
that was nothing more than simply correlation. Although I would think that over time with enough neighborhoods, you could say, okay, every time we put in sidewalks, for instance, something happened. Were there any factors, any city actions like that, that over time, in your opinion, looked like they were a causative factor? Um, Right off the top of my head, nothing stands out as being exceptional. What I would say is that there were neighborhoods that early on started at the bottom of the scale in terms of the statistical analysis and over time actually moved from the fragile through the threatened, through the stable categorization. And so a, a neighborhood like Belmont, which started out as very much near the bottom, actually by the time we, we finished doing that phase of the study, had moved into the stable category. Now, now mind you, what was taking place was significant demographic change and what we could see was the investments in infrastructure and human resources were attracting capital. New people were moving in. So, you know, issues of gentrification were at work. But in a sense, that gentrification was desirable because that's the reason those investments were being made. So it's now um, 2016. Yep. These reports are no longer in those notebooks. I right. have a stack of them in my <laughs> office. They're now online. <clears throat> How has going online changed the way that um, that tool has been used. Okay. Uh, the change occurred in 2010 when we received federal uh, stimulus money, economic stimulus money, and we had been working with the county up to that point in terms of being a data provider, and the county was using the study, but the geography of the study did not include the county. It was simply the city. So in 2010, with the county saying they wanted to become a participant, we actually went from being citywide to countywide, and we went from having only those City of Charlotte neighborhoods to the county plus the towns. So now we've got complete geographic coverage. So we've got a huge increase in terms of geography. And then uh, the other piece of it was that we were able to expand the scope of the variables in the model, uh, doubling uh, those variables. Uh, And so we had a, a, a richer sort of palette in terms of looking at what was going on with the neighborhoods. The third major change I would point out is that up to 2010, we had, we had combined all the variables to create a single composite measure for the neighborhood. And as a result, uh, and then ranking that into the stable transitioning and, and threatened category. And that, in a sense, was labeling neighborhoods. And in many ways, we realized, because of the methods we were using, you could be a neighborhood that was that was doing a whole lot of work and a lot of good things were happening, but because you were so poor to begin with, you never were going to move out of that bottom category. And so there was there was a stigmatizing occurring. And so we dropped that. And all we do now with the new online version is essentially present the data and let neighborhoods use it in a fashion that suits their purposes rather than saying, oh, Mary's neighborhood is, is at the bottom because of X, Y, and Z. Um, so we've now got this online tool, which is much broader geographically, has many more variables, is much more robust in terms of what the variable coverage is, uh, and then it is, it is um, layered into this software and layered into this website that is incredibly uh, nimble in terms of being able to go in and, and pick neighborhoods, combine neighborhoods, uh, cut them up, slice and dice them, look at different variable categories, uh, so it's a far more powerful tool in terms of its utility. 
And I think you can find it by just Googling um, Charlotte Mecklenburg and Quality of Life Explorer. Indeed. It'll pop right up. It'll pop right um, up. Well, one of, the, um, one of the things that you guys did that I thought was, um, if not brilliant, at least incredibly useful, was to figure out what are the real boundaries of the neighborhoods. Yeah. Because census data, they don't care. Yeah. They don't care if this side of the street and that side of the street think that they're one neighborhood. They just divide it up according to who knows how. You probably know how, but <laughs> I don't. But talk about how you guys figured out how to draw the boundaries of the different neighborhoods for, yeah. for this that, endeavor. That was, that was a huge effort, but was one that was so critical because of it, if you're going to prepare these studies and, and construct neighborhood characteristics and the neighborhoods don't agree with the boundaries, uh, then it's, it's a useless exercise. So what we did uh, was we, we spent close to nine months on this, on this part of the process, was to go through and take the census boundaries, uh, break those up into block group boundaries, uh, look at other boundaries that were used by organizations, um, you know, everything from zip code, which is really very, very coarse-grained and doesn't make a whole lot of sense, down to what uh, individual uh, police boundaries or, or um, sewage uh, or, excuse me, uh, solid waste boundaries in terms of service areas, all of that. We essentially took all that information and layered it over Mecklenburg County. Then we looked at what we understood to be the best neighborhood boundaries from the Planning Commission and Neighborhood Development and working with the planning departments in all the towns we then constructed what we thought was our best guess, our best estimate, and then went out and had neighborhood meetings and basically tell us why that boundary doesn't work, then went back and did our best to modify it in such a way that we we felt fairly comfortable with, with the outcome. And, and the results from the public meetings, uh, I think, paid off in terms of showing that, that the boundaries were um, uh, pretty good. And, and I would say that even after we decided upon those boundaries, we still, during the first year of the new process, were open to modifications, and we modified those boundaries as well. Um, were there any particular na- neighborhoods where people just said, you've got it all wrong, and you guys really had to change it? Uh, there were a few neighborhoods that came forth and, and had very good arguments why the boundaries we were using didn't work. And I'm proud to report that at the end of the process, they, they came away satisfied, and we, we did respond to their concerns. Um, another thing that I find very interesting about the Quality of Life Explorer is the environmental information. Um, and you guys somehow got energy usage uh, we and, did. and utility usage. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we and, and this was one of the, for somebody who started out their work in the environmental planning area, this was one of the, the great um, uh, improvements that we made from the earlier version to the, to the later version. Uh, and that was in the first Quality of Life analysis, we had zero environmental variables because a lot of those data are collected at very large geographies and you can't uh, essentially tease down those large geographies into small neighborhood boundaries. What we're able to do in this version of the quality of life is to go in and look at things like water usage, uh, look at recycling. We were able to take the data from solid waste to tease out of that household usage. Uh, We were able to get energy uh, data I'm proud to say we were the first city that we know about that was able to get those data from both the uh, electricity and the natural gas provider. So you hear about places like Seattle and Portland and Austin, Texas, which have this great neighborhood sort of assessment system that looks at environmental variables, but Charlotte-Mecklenburg beat them to the punch in terms of getting some of those data. 
walkability, um, uh, connectivity. I mean, if you're environmentally inclined and you want to know what's going on across Mecklenburg County, uh, we've given you a whole palette to work with in terms of individual variables to, to kind of construct what's going on at that neighborhood level. One of the interesting um, things you can look at is accessibility to transit. And I know a friend of mine lives in the Stonehaven neighborhood, and the last time I looked, their accessibility to transit in the whole Stonehaven neighborhood was 0%. Yeah. So it highlights some of these areas that have a lot of amenities but that are lacking. I mean, your choice of amenities I thought was interesting. Yeah, and it again, rather than being judgmental and saying Stonehaven doesn't have bus service and so that's bad, we, we left it up to the people of Stonehaven. So now they can take that information, they can go to CATS and say, this is important to us and we do need bus service. Or if, they're, if, they, you know, if they've got good bike access and that's more important to them, they can go and say, we need bike lanes in the neighborhood. So hopefully it's an empowering tool that can be localized in terms of how it's used. Um, describe a little bit how somebody would use it. it. Let's say you live in a certain neighborhood. I'm going to pick one out of the sky. Um, Autumnwood. I'll pick your neighborhood. Okay. Autumnwood. And um, and let's say how, how would you say so you you find the website and then what do you do? Okay. So if if you were the homeowners association and you um, had a specific issue, we'll say crime. Uh, so you go to a neighborhood meeting and people are saying, oh my gosh, we've got a terrible crime problem here in Autumnwood. You would be able to pull up the data. You would be able to look at crime in the aggregate. So the the whole what we call the domain of crime. And then say, oh, compared to other neighborhoods, our peer neighborhoods, or maybe other neighborhoods in Northeast Charlotte, or the city as a whole. And again, with the website that we have now, you can essentially click and create your own polygons or your own geographies. So you could be able to say, oh, well, compared to Northeast Charlotte, our crime rate is about the same. But wait a minute, if I look at property crime, we're much higher and then take that information and work with your, your neighborhood uh, police officer and say, we've got a problem here with property crime. Help us understand what's going on and then Im- direct them toward looking at that issue and, and, and hopefully identifying what the key um, factors are maybe that are contributing to that property crime or what can be done to improve property crime in that area. So you can use it as a tool in that way or to kind of elongate my answer here. You could, you could say, well, we're really interested in our, in our neighborhood quality of life in the aggregate. And then what could happen is the neighborhood could sit down and go through that list of 80-plus variables and say, these 10 are the most important to our neighborhood. Pull those out. Essentially create your own customized report around those variables. And then if you want, do a comparison with your city council district, do a comparison with Northeast Charlotte, you know, uh, analyze it in terms of what your peers are in terms of what's going on, and then hopefully provide information that would allow you to be more effective in terms of making the case for the assets to, to address those issues. And there's all kinds of interesting analyses you can do. We just, at Plan Charlotte um, and the Urban Institute's websites, we just had an article where a researcher looked at jobs per capita in the different city council districts and discovered that District 5, which is in East Charlotte, and District 7 had the fewest jobs per capita, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, and, and on the face of it, I'm, I'm not sure that anybody, even a neighborhood resident, would realize that, but for the fact that the data are there and they can begin to kind of drill down and, and uh, dig into what's, 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 uh, what the numbers tell them.
And the other thing, I, the earliest iterations of the online version, I think you, it wasn't you could it was hard to find your actual neighborhood. Yes, a, an actual neighborhood. You could type in your own address, and it would tell you you're in the neighborhood profile area, you know, two hundred twenty. Right. But if a randomly curious person wanted to say, "Gee, I wonder what." what Owen's neighborhood is like. You couldn't find Autumnwood per se, but I think that's changed We have fixed now. that, right. That was, that was, and that's part of this process is that uh, we go back at the end of the two-year period, and actually before we get to that two-year period, and we begin to try and curate what we're getting in the way of feedback, what the information is telling us, and then working with our, our partners at County GIS who actually host the website and build the website talk with them about what we can do in terms of improving uh, the navigability, including the utility of the, of the product. Um, let's talk a little bit now about immigration. You've spent a lot of your time in the last few years looking at immigrants in Charlotte and in, I think, the Southeast. Yes. And um, because, I mean, when I moved here years ago, you know, you'd be lucky to find a taco anywhere. And even then it was probably, you know. Taco Bell. Old El Paso or Taco Bell. And that has dramatically changed. Talk about how you set about studying. Yeah, that was, that's a great question. Um, because I came to Charlotte in 1977. And as we've talked about, my work is focused heavily on neighborhoods and what's what's been going on in terms of, of neighborhoods in Charlotte. And in many ways, because this was a process where um, I had a familiarity. I, I never really was sensitive to, I think, the change, the immigrant change, uh, until we hired a new colleague in the Department of Geography and Earth Sciences, Dr. Heather Smith. And Heather is an urban social geographer. And that, what that means is Heather is interested in what's happening in the way of neighborhood change in large cities. And so her work had been in Vancouver, where she came from the University of British Columbia, and in Toronto, uh, and then in Quebec, or in Montreal. And so her work had focused on immigration and immigration processes in, in Canadians, the largest cities in Canada, and it was very different from Charlotte. But when she came, she began to look around the community, and as we drove through the community and looked at neighborhoods, she began to say, well, I noticed, you know, there is a tienda over here, or there is... Um, uh, Spanish language sign over here. What's what's going on in the neighborhood? And all of a sudden, it was one of those uh, epiphanies where you look around and say, "Oh my gosh, you you have you're you're talking with me about something that I really hadn't noticed." Uh, because we, when we thought about Charlotte, and for virtually all of Charlotte's history to the latter part of the 20th century, it was a city framed by this black-white dichotomy. And so what happened was Charlotte, as as she and I began to talk to people on the ground in terms of people in the community like the Latin American Coalition, uh, Wayne Cooper, who was the honorary Mexican consulate in Charlotte and others, uh, we began to, and then began to look at the census data, what we saw was it indeed Charlotte was in the midst of this dramatic demographic transformation. And we were, as we found by uh, talking with other scholars and other folks who were working in the Southeast and in the West, we were among a handful of places in the country that were what had been identified as Hispanic hypergrowth metropolitan areas. Um, in addition to the Hispanic immigration, what other? I think a, there's been a lot of emphasis on that because it was pretty darn obvious. Yeah. But there have been a lot of other immigrant groups that have, I don't want to say flooded into Charlotte, but have certainly increased their numbers. What are some of the less 
less well-known immigrant groups. Sure, sure. Um, so just to kind of set the context, the locally, it's the local population is about 13% foreign-born. Uh, so that's what we're using for immigrants. Over half of those are coming from Latin America. Uh, they were the most obvious, visible stream to begin with. But during this time period, and, and somewhat overshadowed simply by the number of Latino immigrants, uh, was a significant immigrant stream from Asia, uh, refugee populations from Southeast Asia, and then uh, in terms of a more professional middle class, upper middle class immigration stream, folks coming from um, uh, China, coming from Taiwan, as well as, as India, uh, Pakistan, and, and Bangladesh. Uh, so a significant Asian stream then uh, actually small but growing and probably the fastest growing immigrant stream locally now is African immigrants. Uh, and these would be folks who are coming from uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, both from East and West Africa, and they represent another growing part of the cohort. European immigrants, there's always been some uh, influx, not, not to the extent as it once was in terms of importance, but that represents, you know, the other, if you will, leg of the stool in terms of the immigrant population. Um, talk just for a brief minute about the the issue of undocumented immigrants. And the, the thing I hope you'll address is when did it become against the law to come to America? A lot of people say, well, my grandparents came here and they didn't do this stuff. I think there was no law that said they couldn't come. Yeah, I'm, I am not an attorney, so I'm going to yeah. avoid that uh, question in terms of when did the law change. But we certainly know that early on, uh, the first wave, if you will, the Latino immigrants who came to Charlotte back in the late 80s and the 1990s, uh, that was a group that was heavily uh, male. It was young male. It was focused on blue-collar trades. Uh, some of those folks, uh, at least we might say the initial sort of group that arrived was uh, documented, coming from Texas, uh, coming from other parts of the U.S., coming off the farms in terms of migrant labor to, to Charlotte. And then as the demand for labor picked up, there was an increased number of undocumented folks who joined that pool. And again, it was largely male, it was, it was largely young, it was largely blue-collar trades, and what has happened then over time is that portion has declined as we get more families, we get multi-generational uh, family units, and now uh, the growing number of second-generation or one-and-a-half-generation families that exist in Charlotte in terms of folks who have had children here in the United States. So you have a mixed family. So you might have a child born in the United States. You may have one parent who's an American citizen, and then you might have another parent who's undocumented. Um, but the, you know the trend is that that undocumented proportion is going to continue to shrink as the total number, the absolute number, grows. Um, you've done some work on making Charlotte a more welcoming community. Talk, give me give just a few takeaways from your observations and your work there. Yeah, I think that uh, the data, both nationally and internationally, tell us that uh, if you are going to be a prosperous metropolitan urban place competing in a global market, you're going to have to have a diverse workforce. And a diverse workforce means a workforce that, that is um, bilingual, a workforce that comes from different cultural backgrounds, a workforce that is increasingly international. So if we look at the, you know, the global cities around the world, or we look at the cities in the U.S. 
that are most competitive and the ones that are growing the fastest, these are places that are welcoming immigrants. And there, there's an enormous amount of data that shows uh, immigrants tend to disproportionately hold patents. They tend to be disproportionately the leaders of growing corporations. Uh, they tend to be disproportionately the Main Street entrepreneurs, the small business people uh, across a community. Uh, they tend to be disproportionately better educated. I mean, they are, in many ways, uh, an advantage to our country and to the place where they're going because we are, if you think about it, we are essentially absorbing uh, those people who are the risk takers, those people who really uh, are interested in bettering their own situation and bettering the situation of their families. And so uh, what we need to do, and I think this is recognized by the city of Charlotte and Mecklenburg County, uh, what we need to do is, a, is find a way to make this community more welcoming rather than creating barriers or creating uh, what is a, you know, a, a popular sense that Charlotte is a place you don't want to go to because of the lack of opportunity or the lack of welcomingness. Um, I think that's a great way to close. Um, Charlotte is a welcoming community. Um, so thank you, um, Professor Owen Fursa. It's thank been great talking with you. Well, thank you, Mary. It's been a pleasure to uh, know you and work with you over the years as well. Thanks.